Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we welcome back Fidelity Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm. Denise discusses the correlation between oil prices and equity markets, rising rates and what it means for the U.S. and the Canadian economies, and what top sectors she has in mind. Denise explains what would cause a shock in oil prices in consumers. She says when she thinks of shock, it's historically needed to be big and quick to take the consumer down. She points out in 2008, the consumer didn't collapse on itself until the shock came from the Fed and oil prices. And she adds in this cycle and in most cycles, it takes a long time for interest rates to provide a shock to debt service. Plus in the US, mortgage debt is locked in at 3%, whereas in Canada, that mortgage debt is mainly at a variable rate. Denise also touches on rising rates and the impact on the economy. She says it's not important that the rates are rising, it's the why behind higher rates and higher oil prices. Rising rates are a bad thing when you also have falling growth in the economy, but GDP remains steady with an acceleration in real growth GDP. She adds growth in GDP is more important than interest rates as it relates to the equity markets. The question becomes, how fast can your economy grow without a problem? In some ways, the U.S. has been able to grow a little bit faster without a problem relative to Europe. This podcast was recorded on September 15th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Denise. How are you today? I'm well. How are you, Pamela? Doing very, very well. I'm dying to sort of dig into what this all means ultimately because some pieces look a bit gloomy and doomy, um, but... You have told us in the past that when rates are rising, it's it's kind of a good sign for the economy overall. Take us back to that, and I and I guess feed in oil prices, energy prices, other pieces of the inflation story that are still there. Yeah, it's related. It's really that the why behind higher rates and in some ways higher energy prices is what matters more than the fact that they are rising. I mean, they can be a bad thing. We obviously saw that in 2022. And they are a bad thing, rising rates, when you have falling growth uh, or decelerating GDP. But when you look at the different boxes of higher growth versus lower growth and higher rates versus lower rates, what you'll find in which is more important to the equity market, it's the growth vertical. In fact, the equity market hasn't really cared, and by cared, I mean has provided basically the same average next 12 months 
market returns when rates are either higher or lower as long as growth is accelerating. That tells you as an investor that growth is more important. And we actually have seen an acceleration in real GDP, and we are seeing a turn in the LEI. And I think that that's significant because that means something very, very different to the market than what we saw in 2022. And also the pace of advance of both rates and oil matter as well. So rule number one that matters is the why. If there's growth, that that's usually less of an impact, a negative impact to the market. And the second reason is just how impulsive is the ascent, right? So when the Fed was raising rates by 75 basis points a clip, that's a lot different than when the Fed is raising rates by 25 basis points, maybe every other meeting. The reason behind that is because incomes can grow if that time is stretched out longer so that any rate impact on debt service or anything else is less of an impact to your disposable income. Thinking about it differently, you can grow into higher rates and you can grow into higher oil prices. Now, as it relates to oil prices, you see the same sort of weird correlation, which is most of the time when oil prices go up, so do stocks. And in fact, as you march through the decades, there's been an increasing probability of stocks advancing in the face of higher oil prices. And the reason is, and I think you can think about this as a very as a decline in sensitivity of stocks to oil prices is because energy goods and services as a percentage of disposable income has fallen over the last 20, 40 years. This is very different than we saw in the 70s and 80s and now still very different than we saw even in the financial crisis. So we're even after the you know 12% rise from energy prices over the last year, which puts us 3%, I think it's an 18% rise on the month-end data, 3% rise over the last year, we're still near all-time lows of energy goods and services of income. So this doesn't necessarily have to be a bad situation. Because we can afford it, essentially. I mean, it's not a crisis I mean, we want to, but I mean, we can afford it in theory. The consumer at this stage can afford it and it's not a shock. What would be a shock? I mean, the 75% rate increase is more of a shock than, as you say, every other meeting having a 2.5 a basis point rise. What, what's sort of the analogy of an oil shock? Yeah, when I look back through history and people will talk about you know recessions and the business cycle, uh, what you find or what I find in the data is that you don't often see the consumer collapse on itself. Even in the financial crisis, when housing prices had already turned negative, we were already seeing problems in, in capital markets. You didn't really see a collapse in the consumer until you got a shock from both the Fed and oil prices. And you saw those shocks historically be about one to, well, I should say one and a half to 2% of income that comes quickly. Not one and a half to 2% of income that comes over the course of three years, but that comes over the course of six months. Remember when $70 crude went to almost 150 into that crisis, that's what sparked the contraction in real consumption, which really solidified the housing crisis, which was bubbling under the surface during the financial crisis. So when I think of a shock, it has to be, or it has historically been that big to sort of take the consumer down. Tariffs weren't enough with those price increases. In some ways, the CPI was that shock that we saw in 2022. And that was what you saw in energy prices as well. Interest rates is interesting in this cycle specifically, but in, in some ways in most cycles, it takes a long time 
for interest rates to provide a shock to debt service. Right. In this case, you're not seeing really any in the United States because most debt is actually mortgage debt and most mortgage debt is locked in at 3%. So there's no translation mechanism to that debt service as a percentage of disposable income. So that's fairly muted. And energy, as much as it's rising, isn't at that shock capacity yet. And that doesn't mean it can't happen, but so far it hasn't happened, which puts the consumer in a much more steady capacity uh, when you look back in history, which is supportive of the acceleration that leading indicators are suggesting is likely to happen over the course of the next year. So because you're speaking to Canadian investors here and and much of that debt, that mortgage debt is not is in many cases more at a variable rate situation. Right. So it's a different kind of lock-in. Um, I guess just broadly, what does that do for sort of the American exceptionalism, the different position that the Fed, but the American economy is in from sort of that mortgage debt perspective? Yes. So I think it's more of a drag on people's economies, X in the US. Uh, then you're seeing in the U.S., which, you know, another way to think about it is our star in the U.S. can be higher than it can be X, the, the rest of the world, because that steady state GDP growth rate is actually going to be much more heavily impacted by interest rates relative to the U.S. So in some ways, it puts the globe in a more precarious position from a growth perspective, but it also probably means that their central banks don't need to do as much as the Federal Reserve has already done. But it also means in a cohesive fashion, and I'll draw a little bit of an analog. I don't love analogs, but I think that they're helpful at times, like the 1990s, where, you know, the U.S. entered recession in 1990 and then Europe entered recession in, let's call it, late 1990, 1991, 1992. And then the globe emerged together in 1993 to really have a, a cohesive global recovery. We are seeing sort of the same stair-step pattern where not all global economies are synced together to be recovering at the same time. What that meant in the 90s was that inflation was actually dampened. So that lack of a synchronized global recovery might actually be a good thing for global inflation as much as it's not a good thing for countries outside the United States currently. That's fascinating. That's such an interesting piece of the story. Um, when you see currency, so in the last sort of 24 plus hours, um, Christine Lagarde, the ECB, they've, they've made another increase uh, in rates. It's a small one. Uh, the market pretty much has said that's it. Uh, I don't know what you think of that, but I am kind of curious when you see a rate rise somewhere like that, and it absolutely does not strengthen the currency. I'm talking about the euro in this case. How do we digest that? Yeah, it hasn't for the day. So they gave a very dovish hike, uh, which is what you have been seeing from central banks. Dovish hikes are hawkish pauses, interestingly enough. But it does seem like there was much more dovish and that potentially were done. And I think that that's problematic for the eurozone, because when you look at inflation on a comparable level to the to the U.S., they are two to potentially three times our run rate of inflation with a much lower interest rate at this time and saying we're potentially done. So I think the fear is that, again, it's sort of be careful what you wish for. And maybe sometimes higher rates are a reflection of growth. And the fact that they can't hike more because growth is in such a precarious fashion isn't really a good thing. Right. So this is it's never all about the central bank. 
right? This is a very complicated, nuanced story where, again, 2022 sort of pulled the wool over our eyes and said, hey, it's all about rates and it's all about what the central banks are going to do. Now there's a very nuanced argument that you can really see through history is the why really matters. So to the extent that the ECP, ECB is actually in a box and can't hike rates because growth is much slower than it is or slowing relative to the United States, um, but they still have that inflation problem, that's a much worse scenario than we're faced with in the U.S. So currency strength doesn't just come from relative rates or relative expected rates. It also comes from relative expected growth. And I think that that's the interpretation in the currency market currently that you're saying that, look, may play out over the course of the next year where the U.S. is just in a better risk reward position, at least on my data. Yeah. What is our star these days? Do you think it's a it's a method? Uh, it's a is it theoretical? It's a theoretical method of, of showing growth. <laughs> I'll let you explain yeah. it. It's completely theoretical, right? They never know our star. Our star is just the level of interest rates that will stop the acceleration of inflation, right? So you only know it in retrospect, but you sort of say it in the sense of how fast can your economy grow before you got a problem, right? And in some ways, the U.S. can, can has you know, been able to grow a little bit faster without a problem than relative to Europe. But again, we'll know all this in retrospect. We don't know our star in real time. You would say that just based on history, if you're looking at trailing CPI relative to where the Fed is, you're about, you know, 150 basis points of real rates. And that has been easily Sustained historically, meaning it hasn't been overly tight for the equity market. And oh, by the way, it hasn't really been a problem zone for creating such a substantial slowdown in growth that you have a deflationary problem. So when I look at the actual data versus the theoretical data, patients versus trailing inflation, and what is our star versus the current interest rate, but when you look at actual data versus theoretical data, I don't really see any problem areas. So that's why one of the reasons why people say, you know, hey, we've seen interest rates go up so quick. There has to be some sort of impact. And again, it's that there's the change that is always important, but there's also the level that's important. And the level currently of real rates isn't saying to me, waving some sort of red flag. Take us back to the commodity story here just for a second. A year plus ago when when Ukraine was invaded, the discussion around the oil price, the shock everything. And I remember clearly you saying the United States, much like Canada, has the energy in the ground. We may not want to pump it. There is an energy transition going on some places faster and slower than others. Um, But if we absolutely needed it and couldn't bring it in from somewhere else, we can dig it up in our own countries. In Canada, we dig it because it's oil sands uh, or pump it out. The point is it's there. Yeah. What does that mean today now uh, the world has shifted a bit there there are some deglobalization uh, measures that are quite different than they were does it does it change our economies that in fact it's still there if we need it I, I think it does and in some ways when I look at if you look at the weekly doe production of crude oil uh, what we are seeing is a substantial uptick that has been rising over the course of the last 12 months. Maybe it's not rising as fast as U.S. consumers would like it to rise to offset the cuts that we see in OPEC, but it is rising. This is not a situation we were in from before we discovered shales, right? So the 10 years before 2005, where you had declining oil production. So we are in a situation where we're bumping along, you know, deficit slash surplus. 
which is, you know, a positive relative to what we saw in the 90s, relative to what we saw in the 70s, relative to what we saw in the 80s. So this is still a different situation of the U.S. and Canada being big global players that is, look, maybe it's not as quite as powerful as it was five or six years ago, but it is still a powerful shift in terms of what production can be produced. And I do think that that is one measure of ex- excess capacity that can weigh on the oil price. And OPEC cuts are the same to me. So I know that the impetus or the, like the impulse for people to say is, OK, well, supply and demand correlates perfectly efficiently to price. So to the extent that OPEC takes barrels out and to the extent that we're not producing as much as we were in North America, then that's going to you know, bolster the price. But what you see historically is that's not a great input to predict price. You got 50-50 odds. And the reason is because excess capacity usually matters. And the reason why excess capacity matters is because the market's kind of smart. If those barrels come out, especially for OPEC and for the U.S., higher prices going to call the barrels right back on. Right. So it becomes a risk reward thing. It distorts the demand picture because it's not really the demand side of things. It's just messing with the demand, really. Right. The suppliers are just messing with the demand in their own way. Like it's a distortion of demand, really. It's not a supply and demand. Am I wrong in that? No, I think that's exactly right. Right. The underlying demand is not strong enough to support higher prices. The supply is trying to take out the the excess supply to to bolster the oil price. But usually when you look historically, the market's smarter than that. If there's no intrinsic demand and if you've pulled enough supply out, supply will come back on when potentially some pack or when prices are high enough that capacity is going to come back on in the U.S. to make it very economic. And you're already starting to see that. So CapEx to sales, which is another measure of just how much energy companies are spending, was, you know, they were awash in spending into 2015. And then they basically cut it all off. So CapEx to sales is back at all-time lows and free cash flow is back at all-time highs, right? This is the buy energy story. But the problem is now it's changing. So CapEx has picked up 40% year on year and sales picked up with it. So that kept CapEx to sales relatively low, kept free cash flow relatively high, but now you are seeing that change. Sales are slowing and CapEx is still steadily rising, still growing at that, let's call it 40 to 50% clip. So now CapEx to sales is rising, free cash flow is falling. And you say, well, Denise, no big deal. The levels are what matters. Mm, more often than not, when I look back through history, the change matters more than the level. So if I look at all the quartiles of CapEx relative to sales, the bottom quartile, right, where you're generating the most free cash flow and you say, well, what happens when that changes and CapEx to sales rises? You got 30% odds. You got 30% odds in energy stocks outperforming regardless of valuation and regardless of the price accrued. So that good news story in energy doesn't seem to hold, even with a bullish barrel, even with a positive valuation, if fundamentals go against you. Now, it's at 30% odds is not zero. And of course, it could be different this time. It's but not. They're not good. You don't look at those odds and say it's a positive risk reward. So this is the data that I look at and says, look, I still think that the risk reward is negative. I don't think that there's much upside. I think that there are better areas in the market to play for, almost regardless of what you think about energy, like the commodity. How long is um, an energy capex cycle, typically? Mm, many years. Uh, energy capex to sales, once it starts to rise, and I'm defining the cycle that way, once it starts to rise, it rises for four to five years. It, it tends to, because we've been so low, 
Um, and I think CapEx has, you know, as much as people complained that it didn't come on quickly, when I looked at the data of either CapEx or production, it came back on at exactly the cadence that it's come back on after it's been shut off in the past. So to me, I didn't look at any data that said, this is very anomalous and you're not drilling. I look at the data and say, I don't know, I'm seeing the production. Yes, you're not doing what you needed to do, what you used to do in the past, but it looks to me like your assets are much more productive. So you don't need to drill as much as you needed to to have the same production. Now, the argument against that is this fundamental argument of, well, the shales are going to run out because the decline rates are very high. We just haven't seen that in the data. I've heard the argument for almost 10 years now, and I've never seen it in the data. So maybe at some point I'll be wrong. Um, and at some point, this will all sort of be very, very different. But so far, we have not seen that. That's fascinating. Okay, back to sort of the drag discussion, the lag, yeah. the drag of interest rates themselves and where that starts to bite. I mean, uh, you've discussed sort of the mortgage situation, the consumer debt story um, in the United States. Talk more broadly about about the drag, the lags that are possible. What's still ready to bite? Yeah, I'm not so sure about the lags. So I hear this a lot, right? So monetary policy has, you know, long and varied lags, right? I think that was a Milton Friedman quote or somebody's quote. Um, and people pick up on that all the time. So it's still all to come. I'm not so sure. Neither is the Fed, by the way. Because Jay Powell basically said, and I read both papers, that you can find whatever paper supports your view, that there's basically no lag or the lags have become, you know, completely narrow over the last 20 years. Or there's like a year and a half, two year lag to like an infinite lag. So you can prove it either way with the data. The data that I have looked at says that it's very inconsistent. And in some ways, because we saw almost a contraction, we certainly saw a contraction in GDI. We almost saw a contraction in GDP. We saw a contraction in earnings. It's hard for me to say that there was no impact and that we are waiting for more of an impact. I think the severity of the cycle was in the speed. And because of the speed being so different from prior cycles, we were more likely to see an instantaneous impact. So for me, I'm not sure. For instance, which we did with growth stocks, for instance. Right, right. I mean, that was instantaneous. I don't know what you call yes. it, but it was fast. And I think that the market discounts things quicker as well. I mean, we saw that in you know the pandemic, right? And I wrote a paper about it in 2020 that said, can you discount a recession in a month? And I said, I think the answer is yes. I know it's never been done, but the data that I'm seeing suggests that that's the case. So remember, I mean, crises that you have like echo, right? So that knee-jerk reaction in the pandemic that we saw the market discounted immediately I think that that's kind of what happened in 2022 as well. We saw, wow. we see this coming, we see this coming, like boom, yes, decline, peak to trough, almost 30%. So I think that that kind of happened again. So it would not surprise me at all if the impetus has already been felt. So I'm very skeptical of those lagged impacts and that we're all still to see it. I think what's more likely is the GDP continues to reaccelerate from here. And we still escape this, whatever you want to call it, full employment recession, growth recession, recession without an NBER defined recession event. And therefore, there's a wall of worry, perhaps, that we climb? I think that that's it. And it's always tricky to say because there's always, you know, things that go bump in the night. 
and there are many things to worry about, and there is a lot of bad news. And it always, you know, there's a market for doom, right? Much more so than there's a market market for sort of the Pollyanna. It'll all be fine. You always sort of sound like the the person from uh, Wag the Dog, which this this is nothing. It's totally fine, right? When you come across as bullish in the face of bad news, but I think that the it's it's tough when you look at it statistically because oftentimes the market does go up on bad news. And the only way to know the difference is, is this bad news going to be the bad news that takes us down? Or is this bad news going to be the wall of worry bad news that we actually go up on? I think is to look at valuation spreads in the equity market relative to credit spreads in the debt markets and say, what's the deviation between the two? Is there more fear in the equity markets than there is in the credit markets? Because the credit markets are usually the smarter market and get it right. The more you see the deviation between that spread, the more likely all of that bad news is to be in the wall of worry bucket. That's still the same situation we're in. And that's to me when I say we've been off cycle this cycle in terms of the like no recession recession, but also in the fact that valuation spreads have been pinned wide. This is the difference. If we want to say, okay, all cycles have similarities, our cycle has this very, very magnified difference. And I think that that difference makes it more likely that the risk reward is positive, at least in my work. Do you do do any um, like constant work on all these numbers? I'm just wondering, is the world in terms of investors, um, is it is it more gloomy? I mean, we have seen these incredible flows into bonds this year. We know that story. We also know that there's higher interest rates for people to sit there and get paid while they wait, kind of risk-free. So that's that's brand new in 20 years. Uh, so there's there's sort of lots of carrots perhaps there along with the uh, doom or concern for a recession. But are we in any of the measurements that you look at just more gloomy? <laughs> yes. Well, I would say yes. I mean, when, when you look at either the VIX or when you look at the put call ratio or when you look at the AAI bullish to bearish sentiment, so the interesting part about this cycle is, look, when you measure it at any point in time, because those things are very changeable, put call daily, AAI weekly, and the VIX, obviously, daily. Um, when you look at it in any snapshot in time, what you'll see is, oh, there's no big deal. There's normalized to normalized sentiment. The difference lies in the fact that it's been much more persistent this cycle. So if you look at the number of days the VIX has been over 20, or if you look at the number, the percentage of bulls being in bottom quartile, how many weeks it's spent there, or the same thing for the put call, what you'll see is what I just said on valuation spreads this cycle is the persistence of bearishness has been very unique and it has been very gloomy. So yes, maybe it's normalized right now when we're talking, but it resets very quickly to that intrinsic level of fear, much more so than any other cycle. So there are two things that are different this cycle is that sentiment does reset quickly, both to fear and to normalize. So sentiment is in itself more volatile but it's been more persistent on the gloomy side. I think that is some added statistical firepower behind that wall of worry confirmation. So where, from a sector basis, would you be most optimistic? Where do you think investors need to keep an eye on? So still pro-cyclical. I still don't think defensives offer any good risk reward, given the fact that I think earnings are likely to recover. So the fact that they've renormalized evaluations, meaning healthcare, you know, utilities and consumer staples are no longer expensive, but I think that they're going to have this headwind if earnings recover that they're not going to be able to keep up. 
So I think despite the fact that they've underperformed, in some cases by a lot, the risk reward is still negative. Um, so on the cyclical side, I think that the best areas of the market are where you have the, the higher pro- probability of an earnings uptrend, that's technology, where you have that and strong valuation support, that's consumer discretionary and industrials, and I'd say to a lesser extent materials, and then where it's not evident to me in my work, and we just talked about this, is energy. I know that there are a lot of investors that want to think or that do think that the cyclical recovery will play out as an energy outperformance. And I just see energy being a bit off cycle this cycle because fundamentals were so strong when technology and consumer discretionary and industrial sectors were so weak that the relative difference between the two is now not set up for energy outperformance and is much more set up for technology, consumer discretionary and industrial. It's just someone else's time. Exactly. Exactly. That's so interesting. Thank you for leaving us with all of those thoughts. And on that note, to close out the week, Denise Chisholm, thanks for joining us and have a good weekend. You are very welcome. Always great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.